This is the February Perinirvana session for 2016, the second talk. Blue Cliff Record, Case 29, Zui's. Will it be destroyed? A monk asked Daizui, when the Kalpa fire flares up and the great cosmos is destroyed, will it perish or not? Daizui said, it will perish. The monk asked again, then, will it be gone with everything? Daizui said, it will be gone with everything. This session is commemorating the Buddha's death, the Buddha's perinirvana, the death of his body. Of course, his body lives on in this room, in all of you. But it's also about our own death, our own fear of our own death, our own questioning about what happens after we die. Is anything left or not? If we're cremated in that great fire, will anything be left behind? Hakuin Zenji was asked about people of enlightenment when they're cremated. Shouldn't there always be sharirai, the, the little jewels that are left when a great person is cremated? And often they're collected and venerated. Maybe some of you have seen the tours of the of the relics, the great Sharirai from different Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. And Hakuin Zenji said, those who use the criteria of Sharirai, they decide if someone was enlightened or not, do not know about the Sharirai of no form. Will that no form remain when everything is destroyed? In the Pali Canon, we find an account of the Buddha's last days. It's in the long discourses, and it's actually a long discourse even for that book. It's 40 pages long, and it's called the Maha Parinirvana Sutta or the great passing, or the Buddha's last days. Also, in the Christian Bible, there are several compelling stories of the last days and hours in the life of another great spiritual figure, the person we call Jesus. The Last Supper with his disciples, the betrayal by one of his disciples, his trial, his torture and his death by crucifixion. Often when a person dies, we're interested in hearing how they spent their last few days or hours. We have a certain fascination with that time before death. Maybe we're trying to decide, did the person know they were going to die or not? And if they did, then how would they spend those last weeks or days or hours? For example, Antonin Scalia, who was a very conservative Supreme Court justice, died a few days ago. And there are stories all around the news reassuring us 
that he died peacefully in his bed. There are also conspiracy theories about how he might have been killed by President Obama. But it's pretty clear that he was only weeks away from turning 80. And the news reassures us that he died peacefully in his bed. So the owner of the Cibolo Creek Ranch in Texas, where he died, said, the judge, when I found him Saturday morning, was in complete repose. He was very peaceful, lying in his bed. He had obviously passed away with no difficulty at all in the middle of the night. Turned out that he had a number of health problems, which he hadn't disclosed to people. And his, he was supposed to have shoulder surgery, but his doctor actually had said the week before that his health was too delicate for him to have that surgery. And the news goes on and says, Scalia, a justice for 29 years, known for his sharp tongue and controversial opinions, would have been 80 next month. The ranch owner said he wanted Scalia's family to know that he was in good company before his death. The justice arrived at the ranch Friday with a good friend to join about 35 other people who had been invited for a weekend retreat. The ranch owner said that Scalia and the rest of the group toured the ranch, but the justice didn't exert himself at all. Later, everyone enjoyed a very jolly dinner. The justice was, quote, his usual personable self, unquote, before he excused himself from the meal at about 9 p.m. He found himself in a very congenial group, said the ranch owner. He was surrounded by admirers of him and his work. Among the most commonly said things yesterday was, if this had to happen, and we're really sad that it did, but if it had to happen, it happened in the very best of circumstances. He added, he seemed to enjoy himself greatly. So where did that great enjoyment go? Where did that jolly dinner go? Where did that personable self called Antonin Scalia go? There's a woman named Betty on our chant list. It's not Rayu, it's not Betty Skolton. It's a woman who was my mother's best friend from when they were both seven years old and met in elementary school, and they remained lifelong friends. Betty died at age 96 just two days ago, and I talked with her on the phone before she died. She could understand what I was saying. She, could only, she was very short of breath. She could only respond in a few words. And her daughter told me that it was the last cogent conversation she had. Where did that conversation go? Her daughter said she died peacefully. This is very reassuring to hear that someone died peacefully. Actually, the Buddha talked about this, how to die peacefully, in the weeks before he himself died. The Sutta gives us some homey details. A group of lay followers from Pataligama, Patali village, Gama means village. Pataligama was a village at the time of the Buddha, but it later became a city. And then capital of 
King Ajitasattu's kingdom, when the king expanded his kingdom into a, quite a vast kingdom. And then later it was the capital of King Asoka's empire. And it's now called Patna in India. So this little village from the time of the Buddha still exists, but it's now a city. So a group of lay followers from this little village invited the Buddha and his disciples to stay at a newly built rest house. I love the little details that you get in the notes or by searching on the web. So this rest house was built because King Ajitasattu and all of his courtiers would come into Patali village and they would drive the villagers out of their houses so they had a place to stay and meet and talk. And so the villagers were upset by this and they decided that they would build a con essentially a conference hall, a rest house conference hall. So this had just been built when the Buddha came. So the villagers invited the Buddha and his disciples to stay at this rest house. And when he agreed, they prepared the rest house by sweeping the floor, strewing fresh grass on the floor, providing a water pot and a lighted oil lamp. Then the ordained and lay people washed their feet, and they all sat down. Again, these beautiful details with their backs to the east wall facing west with the Buddha before them. Isn't that amazing that those details were preserved over 2,560 years? Can't you see the scene? The dark of a night in a country without electricity, the flickering oil lamp, the smell of the sweet grass on the floor, the 80-year-old Buddha, the lay followers so happy that the Buddha had consented to bless their new rest house. All those faces leaning forward in the lamplight to hear what the Buddha has to say. He began by talking about what would interest lay people, how to prosper. The Buddha always adjusted his teaching to his audience. So later you'll see that the king is his audience, but here it's a group of lay people in this little village, maybe a poor village, how to prosper. The Buddha's main teaching to lay people was about the precepts. So he considered that of primary importance to people leading the lay life. So he talked about how to prosper. Later, you'll see he talks to the king who asks the question about how to conquer neighbor, neighboring kingdoms. All teachings are teachings at many levels. So when he talks to the king about how to conquer or to try to respond to the king's question about how to conquer neighboring kingdoms, he's actually talking to the king about how to conquer himself. So here, when he's talking to people about how to prosper in the, in the fullest sense of the word, how to prosper, whether you're poor or not. So the Buddha said, he actually asked a question which is a beautiful way to begin, because then the mind is engaged. The mind is more alert. 
mind comes up with its own answers, but it wants to know, what will the Buddha say? So the Buddha said, what are the perils of a person of bad morality? What are the problems if you don't keep the precepts? Hmm? Often we regard the precepts as admonitions. Oh, I must do this. I must behave in this way. But the Buddha flips it around. Well, what are the problems if you don't keep the precepts? Even children could tell you that. And then he answers, loss of property, loss of reputation, feeling ashamed in the company of other people, dying in confusion and a difficult destination after death. Dying in confusion. The Buddha contrasts this with the advantages of living a life according to the precepts. He says, if you pay careful attention to your affairs and live according to the precepts, people will come to trust you and you will develop confidence and you will prosper. You will die unconfused. Dying unconfused. Many people ask about this when we do our class on preparing for your own death. How can I die unconfused? Well, there are no guarantees we may have Alzheimer's and die quite confused. How about living unconfused? How about living unconfused? Actually, the Buddha says that's the best preparation for dying unconfused, is to live unconfused. Once a layperson came to hear the Buddha and was so inspired by the Buddha's teachings that he said, I'm no longer afraid to die. And he left radiant with happiness. But then on the way out, he had this sudden thought. And he came back in and he said, oh, no, I was so happy a minute ago. But the thought occurred to me, what if on my way home, a, a wild elephant attacks me and kills me? Or what if I'm run over suddenly by a carriage and I die in fear and distress? Then what will happen? So you see how the mind turned him from happiness and confidence into unhappiness and fear, just with one thought, two thoughts. So the Buddha reassured him and said, don't worry, don't worry. If you are saturated with the Dharma, if your life has been saturated with practice and with the teachings of the Buddha Dharma, that is what will rise to the surface. Even if you die afraid, even if you die upset, distressed, what will eventually rise to the surface like oil to the top of water is the Dhamma. How about living unconfused? How about living by the Dhamma? That is why we practice to live life unconfused, to become saturated with the Dhamma. Cultivate a wise mind and a kind heart. To cultivate a wise mind and a kind heart. There's a saying by Aya Kema, who was a great woman teacher. She was originally German, but then she ordained in the Theravada tradition and lived in Sri Lanka, and she started a nunnery on an island off the coast of Sri Lanka. She ended up dying of breast cancer at a fairly young age. But she inspired so many practitioners in Germany. And she said, 
you will lose all fear when you can trust your mind to be open and clear in all circumstances and your heart to be loving in all circumstances. You will lose all fear when you can trust your mind to be clear and your heart to be open and loving in all circumstances. Sounds easy, hmm? but we know it's not. Because a small circumstance comes along and it's gone. And we have to bring it back up again. We have to work on it. But that's how we become saturated in Dhamma. The Mahaparinirvana Sutta says that these followers of the Buddha gathered in the rest house and the Buddha talked to them about what would make them prosper and what would cause them to have difficulty. And it ends with, Then the Lord instructed, inspired, fired, and delighted the lay followers a pataligama with talk on the Dhamma until far into the night. Inspired, fired, and delighted the lay followers with talk on the Dhamma until far in the night. Then he dismissed them, saying, of course, you know, he wasn't competing with um, YouTube or iPads or movies or all of the other forms of entertainment we have today. He was, for them, the main form of entertainment maybe for weeks, so that helps. But still, we would like everyone to be inspired, fired, and delighted in the Dhamma. Then he dismissed them, saying, Householders, the night is nearly over. Now is the time for you to do as you see fit. Very good, Lord, they said, and rising and saluting the Lord, they passed him by on the right and departed. And the Lord spent the remainder of the night in the rest house, left empty by their departure. Left empty by their departure. What a relief to have the house of our mind emptied out. All those voices silent, or at least subdued. To have our mind become a refuge and a resting place for us. So we can rest in what? So we can rest in clear, bright awareness. An awareness without boundaries and without a center. That is very important. Always in our practice we have to look for where the illusion of self persists. Where does the illusion of self persist? The meanness, the mini-me, and how can we dissolve it? Oh, I'm sitting in lucid, luminous awareness. Isn't this great? It spreads out like a huge globe all around me, lighted and warm. All around me. Really? Around who? Oops, me at the center again. Maybe a happier me, but still me at the center. A 
house left empty by their departure. In reading this account, you discover that the Buddha knew he was dying. What would an enlightened person do if they knew death was just a few weeks away? To know it's coming seven days ahead so that we can quiet the mind. To be unattached to all thoughts. That's easier if we don't wait till the last moment. That's easier if we've practiced it for decades, being unattached through this mini-me composed of thoughts about thoughts. So if you would close your eyes for a moment and imagine as clearly as you can that you've been feeling badly for several weeks. Your energy level is very low. You think you've had fevers at night, and you go to the doctor, and the doctor does some tests, and the doctor says that you have an incurable illness. There is no known medicine for it. And you have about one month, four weeks to live. This actually happened to a Dharma teacher, a friend of ours in San Francisco. Feeling fine, developed stomach ache, went to the doctor. Pancreatic cancer, only a few months to live. So imagine you have one month to live. Just one month, four weeks, 30 days. What would you do? In those 30 days, you have to look at the various realms of your existence. If you have a job, would you continue the job? Would you work, continue working? Or would you quit your job if you had one month to live? Would you continue exercising? Would you go for runs every day or do yoga? Or would you let that go? How about recreation? Would you go camping one more time or to the ocean one more time? Would there be music that you would like to hear for the last time or a particular book that you would like to read again? Would there be closets or garages or entire houses or houses and storage containers to clean out in that month so you don't leave a lot of trouble for other people? Would there be dances or parties you wanted to go to or arrange? Would there be food to eat or drink? Alcohol, drugs to take one last time? If you had four weeks less left to live? What about people in your life? Who would you talk to? Who would you spend time with? Is there anybody that you would go visit or want to visit you? 
What would you say to them? Would you want to spend time planning your memorial service? Think about any unfinished projects you have. Would you try to finish them in one month or would you toss them overboard? How about other unfinished business? Old conflicts, unresolved. Searching around in your life are there any apologies that need to be made or thank yous to send or say before you leave? Any old grudges to try to heal? Hospice workers say that the saddest thing to see is someone who dies with regrets saying, oh, if only I had. So if you had one month left to live, would there be any regrets? If only I had time to. Usually we deny death, especially when we're young. Mm -hmm. But then someone maybe our age dies and the, the veil is lifted, the curtains part, and we realize that death could be on our shoulder. That we're carrying death around with us and maybe many times during a day or a week it passes us by and we don't even know it. So it can help periodically to look at, if I only had a certain time to live, what would I get rid of? What would I toss out and what would I continue to do? How would I spend the remaining bits of my life energy? If you were enlightened and not afraid of death at all, what would you do? If like the Buddha you had no belongings, and you had no particular desires, then what would you do? If you had an all-encompassing awareness and could see, feel, and hear the cries of the Saha world, the world of distress that must be endured, as Jogan spoke of yesterday, if you could see and feel and hear all the distress in the Saha world, then what would you do? In that last month. As Jogan mentioned yesterday, we have to have gratitude for the Saha world. It is exactly the substance we work with in our practice. 
a few months ago when I was so sick, I found that I couldn't practice in the usual sense of practice. I couldn't concentrate my mind at all. I could not concentrate my mind at all, but I could be aware. And because I was having so much pain with breathing for a few nights, I took opiates for the first time in my life. And I was stunned to discover that I became a benign sociopath. That before, when I was in pain, I had been doing loving-kindness practice for all people who could not breathe or who were in bad pain. But when I, when my pain was gone, and I reached out to do that practice, I didn't care about them. I didn't care at all. And I tried reaching out to the Syrian refugee crisis and the people drowning, trying to reach freedom. And I didn't care about them at all. I was like, oh, they're on the other side of the world. Who cares? That was really stunning. And I was telling one of our downtown teachers, who's the leader of the refuge recovery group, about this phenomenon. And he said, yeah, no suffering, no compassion. When all your suffering, mental, physical, and emotional, is gone, then your compassion is gone. The Buddha wasn't suffering in our sense of suffering. He had pain in his body. But he wasn't suffering. But still, he felt compassion for people who were enduring unnecessary suffering. He wasn't high on opiates. Maybe he was high on enlightenment. Or maybe totally grounded in enlightenment. How would you feel if you had spent 45 years teaching obstinate human beings how to leave suffering behind and a majority had ignored you and continued to wallow in their self-created unhappiness and even created more? And you had a month to live. Would you say, ah, forget it. Didn't didn't work for 45 years. Why waste my time in the next four weeks? How would it be if you felt no personal distress at their ignorance and their obstinance and you just saw it as an objective fact? I saw this beautiful quote. I can't remember where I found it, but it's, it kind of encapsulates this. I am, I am the witness and the heart. I am the witness and the heart. So the Buddha was the witness to all of this and much more than we can perceive. And he had a heart. When the Buddha knew he was dying, he didn't go into seclusion. He didn't alarm his disciples by telling them what was happening. He just kept on with his usual life, teaching anyone who asked for the teachings or for his advice. The Mahaparinirvana Sutta the story of those weeks before he actually died, begins with a visit from a messenger who was sent by King Ajudisattu. The king wants to know if he will win if he attacks the neighboring Vigians. The Vigians were a consortium of a few other tribes. 
And he, said, he wants to know, will I win if I attack them and bring them to ruin and destruction? And the king tells the messenger, whatever the Lord says to you, report that faithfully back to me, because Tathagatas never lie. So imagine one of our hawkish politicians. You could conjure up who? Approaching the Dalai Lama to ask whether we will win if the U.S. attacks ISIS in Syria and Boko Haram in Nigeria with nuclear weapons. Because the attacks that Ajitasatu launched were devastating. What would the Dalai Lama say? What can any of us say with our limited understanding and our vision clouded by fear? The Buddha, who has clear understanding and far-reaching vision, doesn't actually answer directly. He teaches by asking a series of questions about the Vigians. He doesn't ask these questions to the messenger, but he asks them to Ananda, who is his... lifelong personal attendant, almost lifelong personal attendant, and who is standing behind him, fanning him in the heat. So we ask Sananda. So this is called a karam shot, you know, a bouncing off shot. So he's apparently talking to Ananda, but but the messenger can hear the questions and also consider his own answers and the answers that Ananda gives. So Ananda asks about the Vigians. He asks, do the Vigians hold regular and frequent assemblies? Yes, says Ananda. Do they meet in harmony, break up from their meetings in harmony, carry on their business in harmony? Yes, says Ananda, they do. Then the Buddha asks, do they honor their laws and traditions? Yes, they do. Do they honor, respect, and revere their elders of long standing? Yes. Do they not abduct and rape women and girls? No, they don't do that. Do they have a sincere spiritual life? And do they care for religious mendicants? Yes, they do. Then the Buddha says, as long as this is true, they will prosper. So we look at that message to each of us. And he's, of course, offering a teaching to the messenger who will take it back to the king. How will the king prosper? In harmony, if he maintains harmony, if he honors the precepts, the laws, the traditions, the wise people, women and children, if a sincere spiritual life is at the core of their life, if they care for religious teachers, then, he's saying to the king, Ajitasattu, then you will have conquered yourself. Then you will prosper. It doesn't matter who you conquer on the outside. It matters who you conquer on the inside. And then the king, when he hears this message, he realizes that the only way he can conquer them is to sow dissent from within, to destroy their harmonious way of living, and to set them against each other, which the king actually eventually does. 
partly by sending spies to convince some of the townspeople to destroy the main shrine, which is at the heart of the town. By saying that it's the source of bad luck, like skeptical doubt can destroy the spiritual faith that lies in everyone's heart and is essential to our thriving. Or the inner critic, which destroys our inner harmony. There are many modern parallels. If we destroy mosques in American cities, will that bring us to peace? Or dissension. So the way that King Ajitasattu conquers the Vijayans is from within, by sowing the seeds of disharmony and dissent and setting them against each other. So this is a lesson at many levels. After the messenger departs to go back and talk to the king, the Buddha says to Ananda, please call together whatever monks are around this city and summon them here. Often when we've created something, whether it's a new recipe or a new discovery in science or medicine, we realize, oh, this could be useful in another setting. This could be useful to this other group of people. That's why pure science is so wonderful and so essential. People get curious about something, and then they make a discovery. And then they realize, oh, this could really benefit this group of people and this people with this disease. Teachers have certain themes that they continue to ponder and expand or adapt to new groups. Just so the Buddha takes what he has just told the messenger to pass on to the king and gives the same teaching to the ordained after he gets them assembled, saying that the Dhamma and the Sangha will survive and prosper as long as they hold regular and frequent assemblies, they meet in harmony, they break up from their meetings in harmony, and they carry on their business in harmony, as long as they honor their laws and traditions, honor their elders, treat women, children, and other weaker people, well, have a sincere spiritual life and care for those who are poor and living their religious life. So the Buddha gives the same teaching. You know, it's very efficient. So the Buddha only knows he's got a few weeks, so creating new teachings maybe isn't the best way to spend that time. But he's saying it applies everywhere in every aspect of life. He says, then the Dhamma and the Sangha will prosper and not decline. Which is our concern. That's why we're here. We want this beautiful teaching to continue so it's available to people in the future who will face unknown difficulties and probably very, very severe difficulties given the way things are going. Then the Buddha expands on his theme to the ordained, adding, as long as they do not fall prey to desires, do not renounce forest dwellings, as long as they preserve their personal mindfulness, as long as they do not become fixated on things to be done, to-do lists, as long as they do not become fixated on chattering, fixated on sleeping, and as long as they do not mix with evil friends. 
And very important, this is his last instruction, so important. So the Dhamma and the Sangha will prosper and not decline if they do not rest content with partial achievements. If they do not rest content with partial achievements in practice. Oh, I feel calmer after one day of sitting and I can feel that some difficult things might be bubbling up and that makes me very uncomfortable and I think I'll take what I've gained and go home and go home early from Sashin. You know that the mind raises that issue. I'll just go home. Fortunately, I brought my car, so I'll just go home. I have a ton of work to do at home. Unanswered emails, clean the garage, fix those loose hinges on the door. As long as they do not rest with partial achievements, then the precious, hard-to-encounter Buddha Dharma Sangha will prosper and not decline. Then the Buddha goes on to list the seven factors of enlightenment, mindfulness, concentration, investigation of phenomena, energy, delight, tranquility, equanimity. These are the factors that we are able to cultivate during Sashin. In the first few days of session, we work with mindfulness and concentration, mindfulness of breath, concentration sprints using the breath. And to keep from developing bodily tension, we alternate with times of total relaxation, concentration, relaxation. This alternation provides balance, which is the essence of equanimity. Equanimity means balance. It means a kind of balance where we can't be pushed off balance. Concentration is essential. Without it, we cannot maintain mindfulness. Without it, we can't investigate deeply. Without it, we can't hold wide open awareness. Concentration turns the scattered beams of our mind's attention into laser-like focused energy that can be directed to any concern or phenomenon. The Buddha talked about this right before his enlightenment. With my concentrated mind, thus purified, and he lists all the qualities that he's developed in his mind. And he ends by saying, I directed it to. So he directed that incredible, incredibly developed mind to looking into the source of suffering, the end of suffering. That happens to us in a, in a smaller way during Sashin when our mind gets very quiet and open, we can sometimes bring in a, a, an issue and look at it with objectivity, and the solution just appears. Remember, the Buddha knows he is dying, and he gives the same teaching that he has given hundreds of times. I will abide without hostility and without ill will. So he has no hostility or no ill will about having to give the same teaching hundreds of times just responding appropriately to what is in front of him. And after that, he expands again, expands his teaching, and he adds, as long as they develop perception of impermanence. Oh, impermanence. As long as they develop perception of impermanence, of non-self, of impurity, of danger, of overcoming, 
of, of cessation. So each of these words, we could give a whole Dharma talk on. Impermanence, non-self, impurity, danger, overcoming, cessation. He asked the assembled disciples to show loving kindness to each other. So he asked them directly. He says, if you're to prosper and continue, and he's got in his mind after I die, you must show loving kindness to each other and share whatever you have with each other and to keep the rules that support the container of their training and to go forward undaunted toward utter destruction of suffering to liberation and to hold this conduct and awareness both in private and in public. Whoa. If you were responsible for a large group of people and you knew you were dying and you knew that their training and understanding So if you were responsible for a large group of people and you knew they were, that you were dying and you knew that their training and understanding were incomplete, what would you do? Probably what the Buddha did. Keep on teaching. If you were dying, if you were dying, and they put you on worldwide TV, broadcast all over the world, what advice would you give the world? Think about that just for a moment. What advice would you give to all the people in the world, your last words heard by everyone. There's a beautiful story that Ajahn Amaro told us about a Theravada teacher in Los Angeles. And in the last few years of his life, he just said to his monks, please don't fight with each other. That was his message, please don't fight with each other. That's not bad final advice to our children, to our co-workers, to our Congress, to the world. Please don't fight with each other. Please do the simple things I have taught you so that you can end suffering, find liberation, prosper, and not decline, and so that this beautiful teaching will be available to everyone who needs it in the future. The Buddha knew he was dying. We don't really know it. We don't really acknowledge from the moment we are born, we're entering the process of dying. We've been chanting the Diamond Sutra, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud. I like how we chant it faster and faster. It's just like the pace of our life. When we're young, a day seems long. A weekend seems long. A year incomparably prolonged incomparably, unbearably long. Christmas is one day ahead, you say to a child. Yay! 
Christmas is one day away. It's tomorrow. Oh, I can't wait. Tomorrow, it's so long. And then the day after Christmas, oh, now Christmas is a year away. Oh, I can't wait that long. It's like the beginning of our chant. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. Now at age 70, it seems like Sunday comes, is over. I have a long sleep Monday until Monday morning. I eat a few meals, answer a few emails, and suddenly Sunday's here again. What happened to Tuesday, Wednesday, etc.? All the days in between. Somebody stole my days. Sunday, dot, 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 dot. Sunday, dot, 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 dot. Sunday, dot, 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 dot. Our life will be over before we know it. How will we spend it? You can continue to practice with impermanence, if that's a useful practice for you. You can become more and more detailed. Usually we do practice in lumps. When we first practice, like the breath is the out-breath, the turning, the in-breath, three, three lumps. But then when we practice longer and longer, years and years and years with the breath, it becomes so detailed, so many fine points, flowing, 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 infinite number of microseconds of breath, changing, 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 changing. So you can continue to practice with impermanence, if you wish, or this is a useful practice when we're contemplating our own death. Close your eyes for a moment. So the last breath of a dying person is an out-breath sometimes called the death rattle. It rattles often or makes a funny noise because the voice box is relaxed. So the last breath is an out-breath. So in this practice, as you breathe out, this is your last breath. This is your last breath. This is my last breath as you breathe it out. Then a slight pause. Oh, oh, I was given another breath. And that's my first breath, first breath of the new life. Then, oh, dying, last breath, last breath, last breath, last breath, out, flows out, flows out, entering the unknown. Oh, surprise, I get another breath, in flows the new in-breath. So this practice is called last breath, first breath, last breath on the out-breath, and then, oh, Another breath. It's almost another way of saying it. The Tibetans say it's like watching a person who's very ill, like a child who's very ill, and you're not going to sure, not sure they're going to live. And you're watching each breath, wondering, is this the last breath? Or an elderly person, someone you love, you. Is this the last breath? The last breath? The last breath? Is this my last moment of awareness? And then stop momentarily, and then oh no, I get a whole nother breath whole nother few seconds of life. So you can try that practice if you like. I find it very useful. Even if those, even those of you who are young, you will be middle-aged and old before you sneeze and open your eyes again. Life quickly passes by and opportunity is lost. We have such a beautiful opportunity here to practice. Each of us should practice to awaken, awaken, take heed.
Do not squander this precious life. 